0: Good morning. Good morning. So as if, if you recall, two weeks ago, I promised that today we'd start a series on Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we're going to do for the next several weeks. We're going to be studying through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. Today, I'm really just going to kind of give up an introduction. And then I'm going to actually read the whole thing to you before at the end of the service. And I'll explain why I want to do that when we get there. So you're going to hear something I think you've probably never heard before just by hearing the entire Sermon on the Mount all the way through in one sitting, just the way it was for the first people who heard it that day on the Galilean shore. But to begin with, let's talk a little bit about how this passage called the Sermon on Mount came to be and what it means and kind of understand it a little better. So. There's three things I want you to understand about the Sermon on the Mount before we actually get into it next week. The first one is the setting. The second one is the location, the physical location. And the third one is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. So the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is it's it's the first major teaching event in Jesus's life. You could even say that at this point, Jesus becomes a proper rabbi. By sitting down and doing the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I say that is because in the rabbi traditions and cultures, you would start to develop your ideas. You would have a few disciples that followed you. And then you would have like a major teaching event. Right. And then you were then considered a, a rabbi. That was just the way they worked their system. And so now Jesus is starting this. But, of course, he's doing it very different than any other rabbi or Pharisee would typically do. And the other question that comes to the idea of the setting for this in the context is what's led to this moment? How has how has Jesus gotten to this place where he's ready to sit on a mountainside on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee and give what we know is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, when we look at Matthew's gospel, We know that and recognize that he writes more topically. He doesn't necessarily go sequentially in events. He puts things together in groupings and subject matters. Luke is the historian of the four Gospels. He's the one who writes history the way we think of and are used to reading history because he writes it chronologically in an order that events took place. And so by looking at Luke's Gospel, The first thing we'll see is that the Sermon on the Mount takes place in chapter 6, starting in verse 20, going through verse 49. And by looking at what Luke records in the first five chapters of Luke, as well as the first half of chapter 6, we start to get an understanding of what's already happened with Jesus in this point of his life. And there are, I mean, there's probably... 50, But I came up with 11 things that I thought were significant in leading up to this moment of the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is that he's already been identified as the Son of God from Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 3, where he's walking by the Jordan River and John speaks out and says, behold, the, you know, this is the Son of God. The second thing is that he's already been through the temptation in the wilderness, That happens immediately after his baptism and the dove coming down and resting on his head and hearing the father's voice say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Goes straight out into the desert, into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And here, see, this is important. What is Satan trying to do in the three temptations of Jesus out in the wilderness? He's trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut. He's trying to get Jesus to skip His humiliation that he must go through here in the three years of ministry, the rejection by the Jews, everything that happens in the leading up to the cross and then dying on the cross. Satan is tempting Jesus to skip all that and just go straight to the throne that is his. Then he goes out, comes out of the period of temptation and he goes to Nazareth where he's rejected there by in his own hometown by the people that watched him grow up. And this, of course, is a foreshadowing of the Jews rejecting Jesus, even in the early gospels or earliest portion of the gospel of Matthew and Luke. We see this foreshadowing of what the Jewish nation is going to do by what the people of Nazareth do. I mean, they even try to kill him at this point. He's already driven out demons and healed many sick by the time he gets to the Sermon on the Mount. We've already had the, mir- the miracle of catching the great fish, the miracle of the great catch of fish that Peter and James and John and Andrew did that day where they broke, where the nets were breaking. And Jesus says, now I'll make you fishers of men. He's already called all of his disciples Are many of his disciples, I shouldn't say all because he, you know, he continues to add more disciples even after the Sermon on the Mount. He's healed every disease and every infirmity known to man at this point. He's forgave sins. He stood in the Capernaum synagogue and said to the guy who was crippled, Your sins are forgiven. So he's forgiven sins, which means But wait, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus has already done this. And he's already had several confrontations with the religious leaders. He's appointed and picked out his 12 apostles. And lastly, in my list at least, he's already attracted great crowds from the whole region of Judea and the Gentile areas. I mean, you even have people from here in Sidon coming over into Jewish territory just to listen to Jesus talk. That is freaky weird. If you're a Jewish person and you're one of Jesus's Jewish disciples, it is freaky weird for people from Tyre and Sidon to come over just to listen to Jesus talk. And all this has happened leading up to and setting the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. But then we have the physical location. And I sort of meant hinted to that because we don't know exactly where the location is. We do know that it has to be on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it had to be within a reasonable walking distance of the village of Capernaum. And we know the traditional site, which is, has a monastery on top of it and an active Catholic church. that's called the Mount of Beatitudes Monastery and Church. It fits the description and the general location requirements. For being the site where Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount. The topography is just a natural amphitheater. If you were, if you ever go there, you just, you have this spot where there's a flat spot, a plateau, like Luke describes, and then this upslope hill, and it just fits like a natural amphitheater. It would be easy for people to, to listen to Jesus as he spoke that day, or days. But a critical aspect here of the location was that it got Jesus and the crowds away from the synagogues and the religious leaders. In a sense, sort of metaphorically, okay, not literally, but metaphorically, Jesus is walking away from the mess that Judaism has become by taking the people and holding his great sort of, you can't really say it's a coming out moment, but the moment where he has this important sermon of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. So he's leaving Judaism because of the mess it has become. But wait, there's more for 1995. You too can have the Sermon on the Mount. All of the Gospels go out of their way to show that Jesus is in the wilderness whenever he does something major. Yes, it's true that he taught in the villages and the synagogues, but however when you look at the big events, the Sermon on the Mount, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the healing of the demoniacs, the big events, they always occur in the wilderness. And the gospel writers go out of their way to draw this and make this apparent and you know, impossible for us to miss it, that he's in the wilderness doing all these things, which immediately raises the question. Why is it so important that they communicate to us he's in the wilderness in the middle of these big events of his ministry? And this is to draw a direct parallel between Jesus and Moses. The Sermon on the Mount is no exception. Just as Moses gave the Israelites the law from Mount Sinai in the wilderness, so Jesus is giving the fulfillment of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Which leads us to the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The purpose, as with all things that God is doing, God always has multiple purposes in what he's doing. And the Sermon on the Mount itself has multiple purposes. You know, here are just a few. I don't even pretend like these are maybe the most important. I mean, I tried I tried my best to you know, read some other scholars and, and make sure I found and bring out the most important ones. But I won't even pretend that these are the most important ones. The first one is that Jesus wants to establish the ethics of his followers. The the Sermon on the Mount is really the end purpose of the Mosaic Law. And to live like this is to fulfill the Mosaic Law. The way Jesus describes how we live in the Sermon on the Mount, what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, is the literal fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. The second thing is that it resets the Mosaic law to what it was intended to be from the mess the religious elites had made it into. I mean, my Lord, you just because you go through the Gospels, you see some of the just. I can't use that word. Very. Not smart. Things. Very unnecessary weight. That many of the religious elites had turned the law into with their traditions and their interpretations. And Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount as a chance to reset all that and take people back to this is what it means to live out the law, not this mess that the Pharisees have created. But the most important one of all the reasons, I think the most important one, and the one that matters the most to us here today, is that it shows our need for the new birth. Yes, it shows our need for grace, but it shows how impossible it is for us to live like this apart from the working of the Spirit and the transformation of our heart, mind, and soul by a working of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd Jones, in his uh, Sermons on the Mount series, said this, that I consider it is the best way to, to explain what I'm trying to say. The second reason for studying the Sermon on the Mount is that nothing shows me the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit and his work within so much as the Sermon on the Mount. These beatitudes crush me to the ground. And if you know Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his life, to hear him say that is shocking. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, I am undone. Read and study it. Face yourself in the light of it, meaning the Sermon on the Mount. It will drive you to your ultimate need of the rebirth and the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount. And as we Listen to it today, and as we walk through it over the next several weeks, we're going to be constantly assaulted with this reality that apart from the new birth, I can't do this. I'm incapable of living like this. And as we'll get into as we walk along through these weeks, even with the new birth and even with the Spirit, I still can't seem to quite get there. But at least I have a chance with the working of the spirit. So those are all the purposes for today of the Sermon on the Mount. And now I want to read it to you. So the first hearers of the Sermon on the Mount heard it all at once. Now, granted, this probably took place over two or more days there on that Galilean hillside. However, There was not this breaking it up of of the sermon over 12 weeks like I'm doing to you, right? Of course, you also don't have to sit here for three or four hours at a time either, right? You only have to listen to me for about 30 minutes at a time. So to begin this series, I want you to hear it the way these first hearers heard the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I, I understand I myself am not a particularly good auditory learner. By auditory learner, I mean someone that can grasp a teaching very well from just listening to it. And and if that's you and you need to read along in the Gospel of Matthew, that's fine. However, if you are able, I suggest that you not look at your Bible while I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount and just listen to it. Just receive it and let it soak in. In fact, This is bonus material, by the way. It's not even in my sermon notes. One of the best things you can do is have an audio source of the Bible where you just listen to someone else read it to you. Whether you're at home, maybe you're doing chores or or whatever, and just someone's reading scripture to you. It never fails. Like ninety nine times out of one hundred. If I'm listening to someone read the scriptures to me, I will hear something I've never heard before. Most of us have probably had that experience where you're reading your Bible and all of a sudden there's a sentence you've never recognized before. This passage you've read a hundred times before. It's like who stuck that in there last night while I was asleep because it wasn't there in my Bible yesterday. Right. That's what it's like to listen to someone read you the scriptures. So. I encourage you to do that during the week when you have the opportunity. All right, so I'm going to try this. Amy and I practiced this yesterday and it went OK. Yeah, I'm glad you're laughing because you're going to need this probably the time we're done. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just And the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Yet, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And when you pray, you must not be not like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about what you will wear or the body and what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not the log that is in your own eye? Or, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample on them underfoot, and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from a thorn bush? Are figs from a thistle? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain fell the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains fell the floods came the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. O oh Lord thank you for the gift of these words. Thank you for the blessing of all that you offer us through this Sermon on the Mount. And woe is me, for I am undone. How can I possibly, Lord, do this? How can I come even close to living like this? Oh, Father, in the hours and days and weeks ahead, I pray that your Spirit would work in me so that I am one who listens to your words and does them. And I pray that that would be so that we would know you and the joy that is there in obeying you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.